making sense of it all. Helping you gain insight and take control of your wealth creation journey. Hello listeners and welcome back to Making Sense of It All, where we talk all things wealth creation and money management to financial freedom and everything in between. My name is Jared Brooks and I'm a director here at Vincent's within our financial advisory division. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Brett Griffith. Yeah, Jared, how are you? Very good, Brett. Very good. Excellent. So our segments today, topical topics. I've uh, brought one in about the future of TV and it is not TV as you know it. So it's about subscription models and the Netflix and things like that. So yeah, we'll touch good. on that. Good. And yours? I'm a bit boring this this month, Jared. I'm going to just touch on quickly an ATO messaging service that they've introduced for trustees of self-managed super funds. Okay, excellent. Our in-depth discussion this month will be covering estate planning, and we have a special guest in today, Kieran Hall from Mertha Law, and he'll talk to us about all the fundamentals of estate planning, which is really good and insightful, and it was a great, great chat today. Yeah, it really was. It, it, um, it's, and it's an area that's really important for absolutely everyone, which becomes evident when it's you listen to it. Exactly yeah. right. And, and Kieran's very passionate about the topic, so it's yeah. a great conversation. Uh, Michael Lee will uh, jump in and he'll talk to the Vincent's Vino with his special drop this week, and we'll wrap things up with our economic summary. And this time it's from Dr. Lowe, who's the governor of the RBA, and his speech at the House of Representatives, Standing Committee on Economics. So this one's a bit about the, the virus and the economy and the impact and things like that. Yeah, that's right. And you know, bushfires and drought. And, and what the flow-on effect of all these uh, events means. can have. Yeah, yep. Should be good. All right, let's get started. So my topical topic for this month, Brett, was the future of TV is not TV as you know it. So this is actually about your the subscription models that are out there now. So the likes of Netflix, Stan, Amazon, and the new Disney Plus, which has been a roaring success from the looks of the subscriptions that have come through there, and the impact that that's going to have on television as we know it. So mm. your your broadcast, who are now having to adapt to this new era of television and how people are actually um, taking taking in television and how they want it. So. Yeah, well, I actually remember having a discussion with a friend of mine who's a journalist probably about five years ago now, and he was talking about, you know, news and what it all what it's all going to mean into the future. And I actually said to him that I can see where a news service as such won't exist like it does now. It'll be we'll get to choose the snippets of news we want to watch based on literally the the headline and the topic and you know, we'll listen to that little grab and that little bit. Because that's ultimately what these subscription services do yep. they allow you to pick and choose what you want to consume for your tv um, viewing yeah so the 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 general broadcasting tv have changed their model to try and adapt with times because that's how you've come about this uh broadcast video on demand mm. so i can jump on there i've recorded the seasons or the episodes of whatever i'm watching at the time and i can watch it when i want to not when they're actually just broadcasting it so they're trying to adapt to that but the likes of Netflix, Stan, Amazon, Disney, they've got this huge beast of subscription models around them now and they're getting in the people. It's just Disney's numbers were phenomenal. But saying that, it's a slow burn. So mm. the numbers in this article said that Disney will lose billions of dollars over the next three to four years before potentially breaking even on this subscription model by 2024. Geez, they need some deep pockets to do this, don't they? And that's the thing. Disney has that. And yeah. that's why they're going to get this market share and Stan and the like are going to be challenged by it because they've got the infrastructure, they've been making movies, so they can now bring in the the crew and the staff and everything and start creating their own movies and putting it straight onto these uh, this platform. Yeah, well, because originally when Netflix started, it was purely grabbing content from other people. Yep. Then it started producing their own, whereas someone like Disney, well, they're a complete reverse. They've been making movies for years and now they're basically – providing a platform where people can watch ultimately their movies. Yes, exactly. So I think the big one for me here is it's easy to have a Netflix account, have a Stan account and maybe sign up to Disney. And then you got the the model of where you might be paying 40 to 50 bucks a month. And at the time it might've thought about oh, 10 bucks a month to get whatever I want online stream whenever I need it, which was great. Mm. But when you start adding on them all together, it becomes very expensive. So you need to make sure you consider that 
Yeah, and and I think a lot of people put it in the context of um, Foxtel. Yeah. So from what I understand, if you subscribe to all the subscription services, you're looking at about $120 a month. Wow. Now, back in the day, Foxtel was that much. That's right. That's for a full true. For a full package. So a lot of people are thinking, well, now I can get so much more content, but yet I, um, I'm still paying around the same amount. So it's... Foxtel never really had a huge take-up in this country, I think, because of the cost. Mm. So it's going to be really interesting to see who ultimately wins this sort of um, streaming battle that we have here in Australia. But the subscription model as a whole is what's coming about. Like we've seen car providers actually providing subscription models. It's the likes of your your gym memberships. You've got to remember to go through and actually review the different subscriptions you have because if you're not using it, cut it out and put it towards your own savings. That's right. And, yeah, and not only those providers, but you know, software is moving that way too. Yep. So it's you know monthly or annual subscription for software. So, uh, and the premise behind it is that it's more bite size and potentially it's more. Uh, it becomes just part of your normal spending habits, so you don't notice it as much. Yeah, which is the risk I find. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that's my topical topic today. What about yourself, Brett? Um, well, mine's a bit more boring, Jared. Um. So the ATO have recently announced that they'll be doing um, alerts to SMSF trustees, so self-managed super fund trustees, around uh, when their database is being updated, which is no- which normally happens by the accountant or administrator, uh, around certain things. So it might be the change of members, it might be um, you know, addresses, bank details, that sort of thing, which all makes sense. A lot of online providers will do this. Yeah, sort people of thing. are doing that. They're, yeah. they're doing it more and more these That's days. That's right. You know, so hey, we've noticed it. You know, you've you've updated your records. If it wasn't you, hey, let us know straight away. Yeah. So that's what the ATO is doing. Yeah, you know, which I understand. Sounds good. Yeah, that's right. I understand the premise behind it. The only problem is that um, a software provider called Class Super, which is actually what we use here at Vincent's, uh, when we lodge our tax returns, we provide them what's what's called an ESA. Or an electronic service address. Now, the ATO have um, capitalised this ESA in their database, which then makes it invalid. So when we lodge the next year's tax return, it's an update according to their records. So now every trustee that uses class, and there's only about 190,000 of them, (laughs) are going to get notified that their records are being updated, which then makes them go, well, hang on, I didn't authorise any of this. So then they contact their financial advisor, accountant, administrator to say, you know, what's going on here? And then they actually have to identify what that was. Okay. So it creates all this extra work really for no That's benefit. That's painful, yeah. Yeah, look, and to the ATO's credit, they've now actually sort of stopping that process um, around that ESA notification um, because they realise that it's an oh, error at their end. Yeah. All right, thank you for that, Brad. Let's go into our in-depth discussion with Kieran now. Really excited. Let's kick it off. Let's go. So this month, we are discussing all things estate planning. And our special guest today is Kieran Hall from Mirtha Law. Welcome, Kieran. Thanks very much for having me along. I'm excited. So we've got Brett, as always, and uh, we'll unpack everything estate planning, um, just the fundamental elements so that people can really try and lower that hurdle of making sure they go out there and get their estates. Um, plans in order because I think here in the with estate planning it's always seems a lot more daunting than what it, it potentially could be or should be um, because people put barriers up has that been your experience around it yeah especially you know it's it's funny Brett that people you know they prioritize their kids education paying a lot of money for that for child care fees uh, and they just seem to really put it as, as a third order issue facing their own mortality and that estate planning uh, but how do you do anything? The first step is starting. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, so how did you get into the into the area of estate planning? So it, it's funny in uh, law school in uh, the universities nowadays, uh, like your CSI, you know, the forensic investigation law. There's 300 students who go to that class, and <laughs> there's just not enough. Uh, Murders, you know, that go on, you know, that, those murders that really need that investigation, usually they're pretty obvious. So in all of Queensland, there's about one job, you know, in, in that kind of forensics area of law. But, Brett, um, Jared, there's always going to be people dying. Yeah, that's one certainty <laughs> in life. Yeah. Death and, and taxes, right? And if you've got a family, you've always got disputes too. So there's a lot of work in that area. Yeah. Uh, and so I got into it uh, 
uh, my dad warned me off doing the law. You know, I come from a family of lawyers and he okay. warned me off doing the law. <laughs> and uh, I got into it and um, originally doing journalism but gave that up and uh, I was article clerk to uh, my dad's first article clerk, actually, Steve Grant. <laughs> and uh, so he was known in that area of estate planning and in asset protection and those kind of areas. He was well known for that. And so that's where I cut my teeth. Oh, there you go. There you go. Excellent. So can we jump into a bit about the estate planning process? Can you tell us a bit more about what that looks like and what, what your average client is and how they actually go through to getting their estates ordered? Yeah. So the first step is really having that motivation to do anything, as you are just saying. So typically a financial planner every year, they say, yeah. have you done your will? We and- do. We do. Every year <laughs> when it comes around to review time, we ask, okay, one of the normal things we'd have to tick off is, is your estate plan in place? Have you got everything in order? And then you see the hands go on their face and go, yeah. oh, I haven't yet. I've got to get around to that. And um, they just don't do anything about it. Yes. And I think one of the real barriers is a lot of people think that they need to know all the answers before they go and do their will. And so we find even, like, especially the more complicated people on second marriages and kids from prior marriages, complex structures, they just don't want to deal with it. It's just this mess that's at the back of their head yeah. that they want to just delay and, and put And some off. tough conversations, I suppose, would be raised on the back of this with having to have conversations with family members about what the estate looks like and how I'm actually going to decide on separating. And so it's this big weight, I find, on a lot of people's shoulders. And, you know, some people that come to us, and I've been thinking about this for years, Kieran, uh, this is what I want my world to say, and they've written the world, but they haven't thought of a whole lot of concepts that obviously an experienced estate planner would be able to help them with. And a lot of that is what do a lot of other families do? Mm. What are some solutions for your type of situation? you know, because we've seen it all before. You know, every family's a bit weird and that's what <laughs> families true. are. You know, don't be embarrassed about that. The most important thing is just booking that appointment and we find that it's that initial meeting, you know. It typically goes for about 90 minutes yeah. um, where, you know, we go through what's your family dynamic, what's important to you, what are your assets and liabilities and, you know, your different structures that you hold everything through. Uh, hopefully, you know, we've worked with some accountants and financial planners before then to help with some of that information. So we're getting the, the real juice. Yeah. On, yeah. On all and of that's, that's probably an important part because we talk to our clients about that is that we have a really deep understanding of their goals and their objectives and what they want for other family members. And being able to work hand in hand with an estate lawyer when it might be a, a first time they've ever met with this uh, new professional and they mightn't feel as comfortable in talking about those deep conversations, whether there's um, kids with uh, addictions or there's other matrimonial issues in play, we'd probably have those conversations. So therefore, if we can have that relationship with an estate lawyer, it actually makes that process easy and probably makes gets the right stuff on paper. Yeah. But uh, it's really important, though, that clients feel that they can have those awkward, I'll say awkward, conversations with either their financial advisor or their, their estate lawyer. Yeah. Um, I, I've had, I, I can think of two instances where, there's been a relationship with a financial planner uh, where it's come out of the woodwork that they had, that the couple had a side arrangement where you know, her money was to go to the kids, but his money was to do something else. But because of something that the financial advisor had done, it had changed that whole dynamic and, and how it was going to work. The client never actually had told the advisor. Um, and, and whether that actually flowed through into any legal document, in that case, I don't know. We also know another one where um, the client had a child from the first marriage, sorry, had an illegitimate child um, as when they were in the first marriage and and didn't actually tell their estate lawyer or their financial advisor. So the work that had been done for 10 years in that case was completely blown up because there was another child there that no, they were embarrassed to talk about. So part of uh, the estate planning education, I guess, for us lawyers is we're trained to also have a bit of a look at the body language in the meetings. And so if you ask, oh, your children and, you know, the husband's folding his arms and, um, uh, you know, it's a bit of a signal that maybe we should have a private chat and uh, see if there's anything else that they've got got to tell us. But but I think that's a really good point, though, Kieran, is that you've got to be, as an estate lawyer, a specialist estate lawyer, it's more than just 
the words that you put down a bit of paper. It's about how you interact with the client and actually not only understanding the law but understanding the psychology of people and what they may or may not be trying to tell you. So it's it's a almost a whole different skill set that you've you've got to build into it. Yeah, and there's also the diplomacy too between uh, <laughs> yes. typically it's husband and wife, and uh, you know we've seen many occasions where the husbands come in saying this is how what it's happening, and then the wife's uh, tore a new one out, I guess, uh, when they've got home. <laughs> it's been yeah. quite different at the end of the day. So you know it's really important to be really inclusive of all parties in yeah. in that process and. Uh, as I guess we were just saying, it's really important that all of us guys, the advisors, the financial planners, the accountants, we all work together and we make life simpler for mm. our clients. Very yeah. important. So the big burning question, why is it so important that I have my estate plan in order? Why is it so important that you why have your estate so, plan what are you, in order? What are you telling clients when it's this is the pivotal point, you need to get your estate in order for these reasons? Well, if you don't have a will and you don't have an estate plan, you're leaving the proverbial Nutella sandwich <laughs> for your loved ones. I know we're, uh, I know Vincent's audience, I better, better tame down the, the language. And I mean, really, without a will, you're left with your loved ones have got to, someone's got to be appointed as what's called an administrator, and there's rules about that, and there's more money about that. This is all in circumstances where a tragedy's happened in the family, and this is the last so the thing they want to do. The grieving and the mourning that's taking place, and now you're having to manage all these other aspects. And, you know, just in simple terms, if you die without a will, Jared, it's called in legal terms intestacy. And you'd be quite surprised. The laws of intestacy, the rules uh, as far as the monetary amounts haven't changed since the 90s. And so if you die without a will, the first $150,000 goes to your spouse and then the balance gets split with the kids, including infant children. So most of our clients aren't real impressed that they've got to hold their family home on trust potentially for their children and, you know, their children could sue them if they've wasted that money once their children turn 18. Uh, So, you know, it's, you know, a bit confronting when, when you look at it like that. But more so, especially with infant children, is what are you leaving for them? You've got to leave some kind of plan along. So you're appointing the right people to look after them and, you know, hopefully they've seen you guys about the finances and, you know, getting those finances in order but making sure you've got the right people to manage that and the right structure to manage that and without a will you've left none of that behind. So, you know, your your loved ones are dealing with this Nutella sandwich uh, that, uh, you know, it would have been quite easy if if you just had been selfless enough to to look after your loved ones and, and make that a priority. Yeah. And I think a, a lot of people probably just go, okay, I don't all have that all that much to distribute. I mightn't have, I've got a home loan and it's got debt on it anyway, so I haven't got all that much of an asset or wealth base to even worry about getting an estate plan in order. Yeah, and but when we do the estate planning assets and liabilities, we have a look at what they're worth when they die, which often people are worth a lot more when they're dead than alive. <laughs> That's right. So we had a conversation in our last episode about insurance and personal protection. So life cover can actually form a big chunk of your wealth if you pass away. Yeah. And but so people don't consider that. quite often there's enough to pay off all of that debt. And, you know, sometimes we're quite often encouraging people with, you know, kids from prior relationships as a policy to make sure that kid from the prior relationship looked after. Uh, And, you know, even young people, uh, you know, they might think they're worth nothing, they've got no savings, they don't have a house, but they've worked in four different jobs and they've got a bit of super and they've, you know, been defaulted into a life insurance policy and it might be a couple of hundred thousand dollars of a life insurance policy, but... If they don't do any planning about that, that couple of hundred thousand dollars life insurance can go to their flatmate of six weeks rather than, you know, if they'd done a really simple estate plan, perhaps paid for by their parents, mm. it'll make sure that that life insurance money went to their siblings, you know, via a will and via directing that super yes. you know, to that estate. Exactly. And, and that's a really interesting point though, Kieran, because often I would imagine the parents will do their estate plan and get everything sorted, but they don't think about their their kids, particularly when they turn 18. So if they're distributing money from their estate to their kids, then potentially all they're doing is passing the problem on because they've given money to their kids, the kids don't have a will, so they've sort of moved where the problem is going to lie. Yeah, and, you know, that's definitely right. And we like to, you know, our, our 
best service we can offer is where we get the whole family involved. So, uh, you know, the parents in that instance, you know, are typically the ones with the most wealth. And uh, over time, they get older and their kids get older and their kids have kids. So, you know, you're talking about multiple generations there. But if you've done all of this estate planning and then you haven't told anyone about it and you haven't included those adult children in those conversations, uh, it can all be unwound. It can all be a catastrophe. You know, years ago when I first started in this job, uh, you'd have the situation sometimes where the husband would do all the finances and meet all the advisors and, you know, organise all of that and have all of these structures in place, all different trusts and testamentary trusts under the will. And because the spouse hadn't met any of the advisors and hadn't been involved in that process, it was all too hard. Mm. And so the spouse has unwound all of that and just said, I just need money in my bank account. Yes. And what's the point of doing all of that if you don't bring people along for the and ride the challenges of the yeah. estate. So I think having tabling that discussion with the generations down the line, gets everyone on the same page and can potentially, from your opinion, reduce the, the occurrence of challenges well, of the estate? Hey, why didn't you have raise your concerns when we're all around the table together, yes. you know, when we're yeah, all happy and I'm all thinking. getting along? And it's, you know, morally it's a bit harder for someone to do that, you know. They had their chance. It was an open dialogue, whereas if it's, you know, read from the top of the mountain by the solicitor after they've died and this is what's happening, you can understand how people get their nose out of joint a bit easier. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. So how often should people actually um, visit their estate planning then? I guess it depends on what's happening. So obviously if you have kids, if you get married, if you know there's a big change in your investments, if one of your children's going through a divorce. So all of those kinds of events. Um, apart from that, I would say about every five years would be a good time to at least review it. We even have a program for you know people who want to stay on top of it where it's in our court, so to speak. So, okay. you know, Typically, the role of the lawyer is we're fee for service and we do a job when someone asks us to. We're not really proactive of going out there and saying, hey, the law's changed. You need to update your will. Whereas you could be involved in a program which involves, you know, a phone call once a year and the other year a meeting where you might bring your kids along and you might um, bring other advisors along and that kind of thing. So everyone, one, remembers what you did and why you did it. Yeah. And it's all, all fresh and top of mind. So, you know, yes. that, that kind of process um, does work. But one thing we find with that, though, is... You know, people have done their will and sometimes, you know, our clients can be very busy, so it's kind of hard to get them to commit to that, that meeting, it's you know. certainly yeah. not a set and forget um, structure in terms of you put your estate plan in place, need to be reviewing it yeah. on a regular basis well, just in case your circumstances have changed. Well, even when I started as an article clerk, uh, you know, there when we were doing the uh, bloodline trusts, the testamentary trusts um, in those circumstances, you know, they had pretty good family court protection and then, you know, there's cases. That's what the law is. The law evolves. And mm. so the cases have eroded that. You need to tweak it a bit more to get that same level of family court protection. And it's not something that, yeah, can be just a set and forget. And your kids turn into adults. Your kids have their own wives. And, um, yeah, so it, it is a bit of a cycle, that, that whole estate planning. Yeah. So that's talking to hopefully someone who's got their estate plans in place. What about the people that haven't got their estate plans in place? When should I be looking to actually look and go get a will what age should i be how old can i be when i actually do draft a will so you got to be 18 to draft a will and you've got to have capacity to draft a will what age should you be doing it well you can do a will as soon as you turn 18 but most 18 year olds i know aren't that interested as a top order priority of no uh, i wouldn't have thought you know, so. doing that will. <laughs> And I, I can understand that. Like, why do they care? They don't have people who rely on them as mm. much. Um, it's more the parents then who go, hey, I don't want all your super going to your la latest flatmate. Uh, how about we've just seen Kieran and the team, the, the estate planning team there. How about you go, um, you go and see them and I'll pay for your will to be done for you. And yeah, obviously an 18-year-old like will, they don't have a whole lot of stuff. So <laughs> it's pretty simple to do as an add-on to, you know, that yeah. parent's estate plan. Yeah. For everyone else, like, you need to do a will. Um, start today. What's the worst thing that ha can happen is, you know, you, you call up and, you know, you don't like what you hear uh, and you might go to someone else. Some people would decide to do those post office wills. Oh, yes. yes. And they're great for us lawyers. So they work. If, <laughs> you know, they're perfectly legitimate and enforceable if you do them properly. But they never happen properly. But it's... You know, you don't have that experienced solicitor along. You're saying, oh, these are all the pitfalls. Oh, this is actually how you fill it out correctly. 
And you haven't considered a lot of people don't realise that a trust doesn't form part of their estate, their super doesn't perform part of their estate. And so their intention of what they wanted to happen versus what the document says are two different things. And so then all the lawyers get involved and we make a lot more money from those post office wills than we do for doing the will properly at that front. And I think this is where it comes back to, well, a lot of the time you do the post office wills because of the associated costs, it seems like it lowers the, the hurdle. So I go and I get it done and it's a cheap and it's a, then to unwind that and the, the legal side of getting other people involved in it can then add to the cost of trying to unwind some of these inappropriate wills that have been put in place and it can become more costly than just getting it yeah. done right the first time. Well, the good news is, is unlike when you do a reno yourself and you stuff it up and you've got to get a builder to fix it, with a will, it's never too late to fix it up until you've lost capacity or you've died. So okay, the good news is, is really you've got, you, you, yeah. you got, you got plenty of time to, to fix it up and do a proper one yeah. and it's not going to cost you more just because you stuffed up your first will. And, and, and Jared, yourself. it's not only if, if people go to the post office and get those wills. Yeah, if they don't see someone who's actually specialised in estate planning matters, if they go and see, a, I'll call it a, a generalist lawyer, they can have a will and yeah, put an estate plan in place that actually doesn't work. Well, it assumes you are the general person. Yeah. So everyone's circumstance is different. We keep going over that in every episode that we've done. And therefore, the generic structure of this type of will might not suit your circumstances. No, well, I, I, I had a, um, a matter where one of my clients, he passed away, but then he seen the lawyer had a will put in place. The problem is that that will didn't actually work properly for his circumstances. So unfortunately, he wasn't willing to spend the, you know, I don't know, $10,000 or whatever it was to get his estate plan done properly by, you know, by a specialist. It ended up co- costing the estate probably about $400,000. So wow. $10,000 is an insurance policy in my mind. Yeah, actually, and a cheap insurance policy in On the back of $400,000 worth of legal Absolutely. fees. Yeah. And Brad, I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts where you were saying mm. when you started off in super that you thought you knew everything there was to know about super, you thought yeah. you were pretty good, and then you worked for a more specialist firm and then you realised... I knew nothing. <laughs> and yeah. that's where the problem is. It's the stuff that we don't know yeah. where you go and see a specialist and they have do this day in, day out, and so they can introduce you to concepts like, oh, there might be um, some family members who can make a claim over your estate. Uh, your super, you know, how do we deal with that, the intricacies of that super? And, you know, I know we're talking about specialists. There's a bunch of lawyers still in 2020 uh, that... Uh, say, oh, I'll do your estate plan for you, but I don't know about super, so I'm, I'm carving that out. <laughs> and super is typically what I'm seeing, especially in your retired clients, they've got more money in super Probably than outside of super, even their family home now. Yeah, um, and to say that, oh, my estate doesn't include that is just, well, that's, you know, building half a house, isn't yeah, it? it is. Yeah. It's just doing half the job. Wow. Okay. So let's talk to some key concept of our estate plan. What is a will? What is a will? So a will, to sound like, you know, wills 101, a will is a formal document with uh, to meet the formal requirements. It's a formal document expressing your intentions clearly and concisely of what's to happen to your stuff if you pass away and who you're going to appoint for those important positions. And there's some rules about how it gets witnessed and executed and, uh, you know, some certain rules about that. Interestingly, though, that relaxed the rules about um, what can be a will over the last 30 years. So it used to be very, very strict compliance. So if you stuffed one thing up, the will was invalid or that part of the will was oh, invalid, wow. okay. which led to some really absurd results. You knew exactly what the intention was, which was fair, and then that beneficiary missed out because they stuffed up one of those formal requirements. Now, uh, the Succession Act allows informal wills. And so that is... Uh, you know, you've got to apply to the court. So it's a lot more expensive. Yeah. But there's been wills that have held up that have been uh, a note on their computer. So has been held like up. back of napkin sort of stuff. Yeah. So yeah. there's one, uh, exactly that case, where someone was uh, in a caravan topping themselves. It's quite often the suicide notes. And so he wrote, I think, on the back of a beer coaster or the back of something. And so wrote the note uh, of, you know, this is where he wanted his stuff to go and this is where, where he wanted to happen. And so they ended up getting that up as an informal will. And they had to have all these experts in to check out the handwriting too yeah, because he had a big <laughs> bottle of rum and some sleeping, a bunch of sleeping tablets. So they had to, the handwriting ex- expert had to attest that he looked like he'd written this before 
the realm had kicked in oh, during yeah. his capacity. Yeah, oh, of course. Um, and even for a client recently, um, they originally came in, and usually, often it's the catalyst is people are going overseas. Hey, I'm going overseas, yeah. Kieran. <laughs> bloody on Friday. Can yeah. you do my will by then? <laughs> Head to South America. Yeah. I want to show. And sure. I'm like, oh, at least the attention's focused. You know, it's not going to go on for years. <laughs> but originally, this guy came and saw us, and um, in the first instance, he said, oh, Kieran, it's worth a bit of money. I want to give everything to my cats. And I convinced him out of that, <laughs> something a bit more normal. But over the period of days, as the week goes on, his instructions kind of keep changing. And so then he's got a reasonably sensible will by the end of the week. But, you know, it changed it overnight. Like, um, And so we went from the cats to something a lot more normal, where he's looking after his spouse and um, <laughs> doing the right thing and uh, you know, some of his siblings, et cetera. But um, so he tried to write one up the night before he was going overseas, you know, a bit of an amended one, which didn't work. And so what we did is we typed up the proper will. So, you know, all worked and it all made sense. And so we emailed that to him and he's on the plane to New York to run the marathon. And so say, so, hey, can you just confirm that despite this not being executed, you want this document to be your last will and testament? So he sends off, you know, that email on his phone when they're literally calling out, phones off, you know, we're on the runway, we're about to take off. And he said, oh, it was a bit of an eerie experience, you know, being on the long flight of, from Australia to the States when you've just said that as the last thing you've done and turned your phone off. So, you know, try not to leave it at that last minute. But having said that, just because you can, like informal wills get up, there's a lot that can go wrong with them yeah. and there's a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, it costs 20 grand, sometimes a lot more, especially if you need that expert evidence, to get an informal will up on the other side. Geez, just... Get it done properly. Yeah. yeah. And is yeah. there certain things that can revoke a will and yeah, and if make you, it null and void? Yeah. And um, if you see a solicitor too, they can help you with um, making sure that you've got that capacity. So they take all those good file notes. So it's harder okay. to challenge a solicitor kind of witness yeah. will. As far as, uh, as you say, um, what can revoke a will is getting married can revoke a will as so far as you're not appointing your... Uh, spouse, your husband or wife, as a beneficiary or as an executor. And also getting divorced, again, in that, that same context. But interestingly, just a couple of years ago, they've also introduced in Queensland now the concept of ending a de facto relationship. So you can see that's a bit of a trickier one because, mm -hmm. you know, some de facto relationships are a bit rocky and on and off. So there's always the arguments of the lawyers of when did that de facto relationship actually, actually yeah. end. Or even when it even started. Yeah, exactly. So starting a de facto relationship, unless you register it as a civil relationship, doesn't revoke the will. Okay, so starting ending it does. Okay. Wow, okay. As far as it makes a gift to that spouse. But with divorce, it's an interesting one because the will's not revoked until such time as uh, the divorce has gone through, which, so you know, is at least a year after separation, as you guys would be involved in a lot of the forensic work for some of those, yeah. you know, bigger client separations. Some of that stuff can go on for years. Mm. And so during that time, it's... The will's still on foot. Wow, okay. And then also, you know, people have got their super and sometimes they say, oh, I'll just give the super straight to the kids, you know, when they um, have separated. But then if they die, who's the guardian of the kids? Mm. It's the ex-spouse, yeah. isn't it? And most people, they find that abhorrent that the ex-spouse <laughs> will be looking after it. So do a proper will. You give it to a trusted family friend to look after and invest wisely for those kids for when they're of an age appropriate to take it. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So another element of our estate plan, powers of attorney or enduring powers of attorney. Yeah, so these days we're all living longer and longer. And so, you know, a lot of people don't even get their inheritance until they're in their 80s or their 90s, you know, if, if there hasn't been any early inheritance. But what's happening is despite people living longer and longer, the incidence of losing capacity and those men dementia and, you know, those kinds of uh, issues, they're all on the rise. So I think you're, you're, yeah, we're definitely seeing it with the ageing population. Mm -hmm. We're coming across more of these kind of cases. And I think your risk of uh, losing, getting dementia from, I think, when you're 60 or 65, it, doubles every four years or so. So the older you get, the more likely it is that, you know, you're losing that capacity. And so imagine, I guess, when you die is you've served that Nutella sandwich to your loved ones if you haven't sorted out your estate plan. But what about if you lose that capacity and you haven't sorted out what happens to you while you're still alive? 
then you've really done a disservice to yourself, haven't you? Because you haven't really set those rules of what happens when you're alive. So that's what an enduring power of attorney is. And sometimes we nickname that a living will. Right. So that's while you're still alive, who you appoint for that attorney for financial matters and for health matters, and they can be different people. So they're the ones who make those decisions on your behalf. And, you know, really important to put the right level of thought into those, uh, you know, and, and really give them some good consideration because they're in control of your life, those people. Um, and, you know, for uh, our uh, retired clients, you know, typically we'd at least go to that next level too. So typically it's to your spouse, but your spouse might be losing capacity at the same time. So mm-hmm. we want that next level, that enduring power of attorney to go, hey, if my spouse can't be my attorney, I'd like my attorney to be, and it might be the adult children or it might be. Yeah, you know, so you have little layers in there. Yeah. yeah. And does that work, I think, when you're travelling overseas, that enduring power of attorney can step in as well? Depends how it's drafted. Yeah. Yes. And um, it's a real area of concern for uh, lawyers and our insurers. Uh, there's a lot more elder abuse that's going on now. So the um, black sheep child might be going around to yes. the nursing home and getting mum out for the afternoon and lawyer shopping until they find a lawyer who uh, doesn't ask the right questions and, and witnesses. It. And even though the estate's got the right to sue that black sheep, um, that black sheep can sell the house, can mortgage the house, can gamble it all, or you know. Or, and then if he doesn't have the money, the right to sue him, well, what's it worth? I yeah. guess then potentially you've got a right to sue the lawyer because they haven't done their job right. So, um, you know, there's that real level of elder abuse, and so it's really important, you know, before your parents get to that stage of losing that capacity that they've had those conversations and there's a real robust plan in place. And, you know, those appointments that you make under those enduring powers of attorney or, you know, those appointments for who's to be trustee under your will and those kind of things take a lot of thought. And, you know, seeing someone who's used to this all the time, they might be able to guide you and helping you make those choices, putting in the right checks and balances in those documents and really helping you consider those issues. Mm. And okay. and during powers of attorney are a massive issue inside self-managed super funds as well, Jared, because as people get older, they might lose capacity. We need to have someone who can step in in their stead to ensure that we are still compliant with the super laws. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so every uh, self-managed super fund, there should be a rule, hey, you got a self-managed super fund, you need an enduring power of attorney because yeah. otherwise it's another Nutella sandwich to sort That's it out right. if you don't have one. Yeah, exactly. Advanced health directives. Yeah, so that uh, gels in quite well with the enduring powers of attorney. Uh, I don't have one, Jared, um, because I just figure, look, my wife I trust is going to make the right decision in the circumstances. Um, <laughs> Could that be if you were more dead than alive? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I am worth more dead than alive. Yes. <laughs> uh, where they really come into play, I guess, is, well, one, if you're going through an operation, so, you know, if there's an operation where there's a chance of you dying, it's good to have a look at it and go through, hey, you know, I do want to be force-fed. I don't want to be force-fed. I do want to be resuscitated in these circumstances. I don't. It's a um, it's a document which is a series of, you know, questions that you go and see your doctor with, your GP, make sure you understand them. And all of those kind of questions, are, hey, I'm in this condition, I do want to be resuscitated. I don't. If I'm brain dead, you know, I want this to happen. Um we still can't euthanise people in, yeah. in Queensland. That's still not allowed. Um, and where they really come into their own isn't necessarily your spouse of 30 years of, you know, them dictating to them of what you want to happen in the circumstances because sometimes a bit of discretion is a good thing. Mm. Where that really comes into play is especially uh, for that next level, for the for widows. The, for the black sheep. Or... Uh, <laughs> The, child. the divorce <laughs> is because we've seen this situation before where, you know, dad's had a fall and, you know, he's 90 years old or, you know, quite elderly and he's got some other health problems too. And so the three kids are appointed as their, those enduring powers of attorney. Two of them are like, oh, look, we don't want to do invasive surgery. Um, let's just let nature take its course. Third one is we've got to do everything we can to keep dad alive. And so then dad lives for another three years and becomes the shadow of the man that he once was. And, you know, it's awful being in this hospital bed and, you know, you wouldn't wish that on anyone. But unless you've made that dictation, you know, it's hard for kids to say I'm going to end my parents' life. Um, You make it a lot easier for that that person if you've got that advanced health directive or then that's a directive, you know, that's what they wanted. That's that's typically enforced. Uh, so, you know, in those circumstances, I think 
they really, really shine. Yeah. Just quickly there, you did speak to that that was a Queensland-based rule around you can't euthanize, but that's important that every state actually have different laws around estate planning. And your advanced health directives, um, you know, the big one is is your family provision claims too. So what family members and, and dependents can make a claim on your estate? In Queensland, it's only on your estate, so it's not on your super or on your trust assets. In New South Wales, all of those are in the mix. Yeah. And so, you know, we have to do a bit of planning with different <clears throat> clients depending on where their asset base is, you know, when we're doing some of those protection strategies. And you're exactly right, all of those um, enduring powers of attorney and advanced health directive, all of those are different state by state and, you know, all the forms are different and all the requirements and all the laws are a little bit different. So, And what determines which state law actually applies? Because you have assets in multiple states. Who, who rules the roost? Yeah, good question. And so for property, it's wherever the property is situated. Right. Uh, so, you know, typically you need to reseal the probate in that other state. And if you've got property in New South Wales, it's subject to those national estate uh, provisions. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, your primary source is typically, you know, where the testator live when they die. Yeah. Typically where you get that, that first level of probate. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're seeing that all the time with uh, people with overseas assets too. So uh, you can do... So international wills and some countries that have signed up to that that have got some even more formal requirements for signing wow. that. Uh, or otherwise, some people just do a will such as, hey, this is a will for my African assets or this is a will for, you know, my American just assets. Separating it out. Okay. Um, so you make sure you're complying with that jurisdiction's requirements and then you've got another will to say, this is the will for the rest of my stuff. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. So um, one really uh, important aspect I see in people using more often these days is testamentary trusts. Can you talk to us about what they are and how you've seen them in work and really the benefits of them? Yeah, so there's a lot more awareness of testamentary trusts. They've been a great tool for years. And it's probably a topic we could nearly take a whole 45 minutes mm. discussing. But We could talk all day on it. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot of seminars that talk, talk a week on it. At a high level. <laughs> So I guess a trust is where you hold an asset on behalf of different beneficiaries a or a beneficiary. A discretionary trust is where the trustee holds a legal title to that asset but has discretion as to where to pay, for example, the capital to or where to pay income to. And in legal speak, an intervivus trust is a trust legal speak for a trust that you create while you're alive. A testamentary trust is a trust that's created upon your death. Uh, and so that's it. It's just your will's a bit bigger. And instead of, uh, I guess, there's even a simple trust in a will where you leave everything to your children. Where they take it when they're 18. Well, they can't get it yet. The executor's got to look after it. So that's mm -hmm. still a trust. Where we talk, typically you talk about testamentary trust. Usually you've just built in a few more features inside that trust. So you've got that discretion. So the trustee may have discretion to distribute to different beneficiaries. And typically it might be that your spouse is the trustee of that trust and your spouses and your children and potentially your grandchildren are all beneficiaries of that trust. And good news is, is that trust has got some great tax breaks. It's a high price you've got to pay to get that tax break. Uh, you know, because you're going to die. So <laughs> I know you accountants, you love you love tax breaks, but even that one might be a bit much to suggest to some of your clients. Can I use it once? <laughs> <laughs> and so with these testamentary trusts, a normal intervivus trust that I talked about before, you get about, what is it, $400 or so you can distribute to each child before yeah. they're on the top marginal tax rate. Four sixteen, so it's hardly worth it. <laughs> <laughs> it's hardly worth the exercise. Whereas with these testamentary trusts, uh, it's around about $20,000 with some low-income tax offsets uh, that you can distribute to each minor child. And so you so can I imagine. Can distribute to my child tax-free and pay for education expenses. Exactly. And so there's more money in the pool of the family because that 20 grand was either going to be paid in tax and now you've got that 20 grand, so you paid for the school fees for free, so to speak. Um, asset protection is another great advantage is, you know, sometimes your kids are going through, uh, sometimes your kids might own their own business or, uh, you know, run an accountancy firm or do whatever. Uh, and so they've set it themselves up as a person of straw with no assets and their parents haven't done that. And then suddenly, or their wife hasn't done, their spouse hasn't done that. And suddenly they inherit a home or they inherit, you know, a whole bunch of cash yeah. and it's stuffed up their whole asset protection. Designed, nah, it's too complicated to get into this now, but there are some tricks where you can design these trusts also to have better protection from the family court. For example, if your kids 
broke up with their spouse or, you know, your spouse entered into another relationship. And again, also these trusts are, in Queensland at least, assets that are inside the trust, they can't be attacked from, you know, the next spouse in the event of death. So, you know, for what's called that family provision claim. Um, And, you know, you can also design these trusts too. So it always chases, you know, your lineal descendants. So let's say if you had one child that didn't have children and they passed away, well, instead of their money going to, you know, the money that's in that trust going to their spouse, it goes to your other children to those other trusts. So there's a real lot of benefits for it. And a lot of people go, oh, that level of complication, uh, you know, is it worth it for me? And sometimes you have a look, well, with that life insurance, sometimes the answer is yeah, you'd be surprised. Yeah, significant amount of wealth that's going to pass through to them. And also it's not meant to act as a restrictive tool for the children, is it? If you wanted to, the whole thing could be shut down, depending on the rules that you've set in your will. Depending. Sometimes there's some real reasons for it where it's been set up because one of the children will spend thrift or... Uh, yeah, uh, so they might be some Sometimes you don't have that complete autonomy, but that all depends. And, you know, quite often we have the with option for uh, the surviving spouse, whether they create that trust or not. And, you know, typically they come and see people like us and make that decision, you know, at that, that point where we go through those pros and cons. And, Brett, with super, you know, a lot of people are coming back now and they didn't set that trust up at first level. Yeah. But now they've got money you can't... You've got to get it out of super when, you know, a fair chunk of that money when... Uh, one of the spouses dies, so now people are coming and seeing us again and, and changing their wills to, to make sure those testamentary trusts are allowed at that first level. Yeah. It's probably a good lead-in. Superannuation, we've, we've touched on a couple of times, but falls outside of the wishes that you've put into the will. Is that correct? Is that what you were saying earlier? So you actually need to make specific nominations about what you want with your superannuation. Well, you don't necessarily need to make nominations, but you need to think about it and you need to know what's going to happen with it. So your larger funds, it's harder to influence the trustees. So it's Mm. often a pretty good idea if you've got something in mind that you want to happen with your super, uh, you know, that you might have a nomination in a certain way. Your super can only be paid to your spouse, to your estate or to your kids. Um, In a nuclear family, all of those options aren't too bad. So you might not you know, necessarily need a binding nomination, uh, whereas when you've got kids from prior relationships and things are a bit more thorny, that's when, you know, they'd certainly come into their own. And, yeah, but you certainly got to see, well, what's going to happen with your super? If you've got a self-managed super fund, who's going to control it afterwards? Uh, you know, all of those issues, you've really got to be on top of all of that. And, you know, I think there's still a lot of improvement in the estate planning world of advising people on and, you know, people being educated and up to speed with what happened to their super women. And I think that's really, really important because as now with superannuation, the when it's commenced back in the day, mm. we're creating a lot more wealth in that, <clears throat> that, in that structure and in that environment. So, therefore, it's going to be really important that that is, you know, you've got appropriate um, nominations or whatever it might be to make sure that level of wealth is actually distributed appropriately. That it's at least considered properly. Yeah. yeah. The other sleeper in Super 2 is, uh, you know, J.B. Peterson in Queensland here years ago before I started practising abolished uh, death duties. And, you know, but they're still around in the Super context. So, you know, if you leave your Super, whether directly or via your world, to your adult children, there's some death benefits tax typically to pay on that taxable proportion. And depending on the amount that's in your super, that can run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that's worthwhile considering and seeing if there's any strategies that might be a play where you can help manage that risk. Because most people I meet prefer that money to go to their kids or to a charity or something rather yeah, than exactly. to Canberra. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Yep. So that's uh, a high-level view of some key concept. Is there anything that um, we probably haven't touched on that you would like to discuss? Um. Probably one other one is if you do have complicated um, structures and entities and say you have corporates and things like that, making sure you understand how the the control and the power of those different entities actually pass and go through. Uh, So having a conversation. I think sometimes that's a bit hard for, you know, people to understand all of that at first level, but, you know, that's part of our job is we talk to you guys, we get the deeds, everyone's like, what do you want to read these big deeds for? You know, we do it all day, every day, so it doesn't take us long to look for what we're after. And, you know, we're all making sure that all of those different entities all gel with those estate planning purposes. Um, You know, I think that's that's a task too much for, you know, the, you know, our general clients to kind of get their head on. That's that's where they use us. That's where make sure you come and speak to a specialist. Yeah, excellent. So if you could, we try and summarise up uh, in most of our episodes with a bit of actionable tips that people listening today can take away. If you can give us some uh, some actionable tips for those that haven't got a will, 
and then some for those that have but probably haven't looked at it for a while. Okay, for those who haven't got a world, is look, we all die. So get your head out of the sand and, you know, do something today. And that can be contacting, you know, if you've got a lawyer, contacting your lawyer of choice. Um, but starting that process, the tip is you don't need all the answers before you see someone. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about my job is I am privileged to, you know, be involved in all these family dynamics and, you know, the secrets of all of these families. <laughs> and, you know, they're stressed and they're worried about it. And, you know, it's really been a real roadblock for them and, it, you know, sometimes causing a lot of stress and health issues. And then I take them through that process and that relief, that cathartic sense of relief they have at the end. And, you know, I've been a part of that process. It's one of the things I love about my job. And, you know, once you've sorted that, you've got a bit more of a spring in their step, you know, going out of those meetings. Oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought. You know, most people reckon that whole process is better than a dentist anyway. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, for those who do have a will is, hey, has things changed with you? You know, I see some people who have a will and they've had three kids and got divorced and that kind of thing, or, you know, they've grown their business from worth nothing to worth $20 million. Yeah. Uh, the law's changed a lot. Uh, if you've seen your school friend who, you know, works in commencing down the road, they might not have considered all the issues that are relevant to you. Uh, you know, for us is uh, for, you know, qualified clients, we have our initial meeting, which typically goes for about 90 minutes, uh, and that's limited to a fee of $300 plus GST. And there's a whole lot of value there, as in it might be that all your estate plan and all of your structures are all in order. Well, hey. 330 bucks well spent, yeah. um, you know, to get, give you a bit more peace of mind. And then from that meeting, uh, you know, some fixed quotes of, hey, this is what, what yeah. it will cost to you know, implement these complexity. kind of, yeah. these kind of recommendations. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, woof, it's not too hard to, you know, commit to, I think that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it can certainly save you, uh, time and money in the long run or potentially for your family who you leave behind when they're going through that grieving process to, Help you help have appropriate plans yeah. in place today. And I would also think you're not only about you know, getting married, divorced, kids, but also if you set up structures. So you set up a self-managed super fund, or if you set up a company or a trust, that's a really good opportunity to have your estate revisited because then we get with talking about that control and who's going to look after it if when you pass and things like that. So. And also, then Brad is. Um, you know, we've got clients and they come in and, you know, it all makes sense to them when they've come to the meeting and, uh, you know, we've gone through why we've set up this structure and the testamentary trust and all of that. But over time, kind of forget, oh, what's all this about? And so even then, you know, it's worthwhile every couple of years having a bit of a look at it, having a meeting, bringing your kids in, you know, for that meeting. And so they're introduced to your advisors. Uh and, you know, just say so you're up to speed, hey, this still works for me or no, my circumstances have changed a bit. So, you know, at the very least, every five years we'd um, be recommending more yep. complicated people or, um, you know, more often than that. Yeah. yeah. And if there's family dynamics like your children going through divorces, your adult children or any of those kind of things, definitely, you know, those are the times to get us on the hot, on the hotline. Oh, yeah. Excellent. No, thank you very much, Kieran, for coming in and joining us today. I hope your passion for this topic carries through the mic and through to our listeners because it's been an excellent one for me and I've picked up on plenty today. Um, so, yeah, very much appreciate you coming in and joining us. It's been a pleasure, Jared and Brett. Thanks so Thanks. much for the invitation and giving me the opportunity to have a chat. Yeah. Thanks we'll, for joining us. Karen. We'll put your uh, contact details in the show notes so if anyone does want to reach out, they can uh, certainly get in touch. That'd be great. And uh, pretty regular on the old social media, the LinkedIn and the Facebook. So um, search us out there if you, you want to hear a few yep. of the, the tips and stories from time to time. Excellent. Yeah, excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, guys. So, g'day. It's Michael here. Um, I've run into the booth here to uh, do the wine segment with the boys, only to be told that they have gone down to get a coffee. Um, so... I would have waited around, but uh, a bit time poor today. I'm uh, in the middle of a trial. Um, so I'm going to quickly go through this uh, this particular one, which is um, a Killacanoon Cavill Flock Barossa Valley Shiraz. Um, now, Killacanoon is it's a, not only a great winery, um, happens to be the favourite winery of one of my uh, my very good friends um, who, if you're listening to this, I did this one for you. 
this is a 2016 Shiraz, um, and it's only around about 20 bucks a bottle when I when I bought it. Uh, for those of you that are into wines, you probably know 2016 was a really great year in the uh, in the Barossa for Shiraz. So this particular bottle really exemplifies um, that Shiraz from that from that vintage. Um, and like I said, at twenty bucks a bottle, this is just an amazing pickup for uh, for uh, for that that type of uh, that type of price. So um, let's try this one here. Just uh, it's a bit hard when you're doing this yourself. Uh, normally I can give the boys a bit of a bit of a drop, but I'll try this here. Now I think the first thing to to notice about this is that it's the it's the colour of it. It's a real dark crimson red, sort of a ruby red sort of uh, um, colour. Um, it's 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 is really really dark red. Um, now just on the the nose here, um, I mean I can smell sort of like plums, black currant. Um, Licorice, um, dark dark chocolate. Um, I don't know. It's 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 like a perhaps a hint of vanilla or, or even mint. Um, but uh, yeah, that's what it is on the nose. Now let me just have a have a sip here. All right. I think the thing is about that is it's. It's actually surprisingly smooth for its age. Um, you know, it is only you know four odd years. Um, you know, it's it's dry. The tannins are soft. Um, it's, it's medium bodied, and it's just got that medium sort of acidity. Uh, it's not too uh, sort of too overpowering on the acidity. Um, well, that's what I've got there. I'll try and uh, like I said, I'm time poor, so. I'll, Going to make a run. Um, I really recommend this one if you can get your hands on it, because I think in about five years, this is going to be even better and better. Um, and I think for some reason, this particular one, it's uh, you know, it's got a use-by date out and well out in the 20, 30 years. So um, if you get to pick that one up, that'd be great. Anyway, I'll leave here. Uh, hopefully, the boys, when they get back uh, um, from the coffee, they can. Uh, they can take the rest of this bottle. Catch us next time. So, Brett, our economic summary. You brought this one to my attention. Uh, the speech by Governor of the RBA, Dr Lowe, um, at the House of Representatives Standing Committee on Economics. So this is around the coronavirus and the threats to the Australian economy. Yeah, so basically every um, roughly around once a quarter, uh, Dr Lowe gets in front of the um, the House of Rep Standing uh, economic committee just to talk give a general update on the economy and that sort of stuff okay now I thought this one was relevant and I know that previously we've said we won't try and be so dour about things but um, I thought this one's really relevant because you know this is the man who's ultimately in charge of our monetary policy and the Reserve Bank in in Australia and his insights into the challenges that the Australian economy has already faced in the first essentially one and a half months two months. Um, of this 2020 financial or 2020 year, um, so really, what he's talking about here is the coronavirus and the impact that that's had or having on the Australian economy, as well as the, the drought, the ongoing drought that we've had, and the bushfires, the the um, horrific bushfires that we've had predominantly in New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, but um, and what impact that's had on the Australian economy as well. Yeah, and it's a bit of a, a perfect storm because all those are sort of coming around the same time, so therefore this can have a direct impact to the economy as a whole. That's right, and it impacts on so many different layers and some of the layers that you wouldn't even think of. Um, so I suppose touching on the drought first, you know, that's probably fairly evident, and he's sort of indicating that's going to be about a, a 0.25% hit to our GDP. Remembering that um, he originally said that they expect our GDP to be about um, 2.75%. Okay. 
Uh, and then on top of that, the bushfires, the indi- the, their feel is it's going to be about 0.2 of a percent per quarter. So for the December quarter and the current quarter. Um, and now really the big one is the, the coronavirus uh, and what that's going to mean. So at this stage, all they've really said officially, it's going to have a bigger impact than SARS did back in 2003. Which was, what was the impact back then on the actual the numbers that flew through to flowed through to the GDP. So for um, for SARS in one quarter it was two percent. Yeah. So it basically it hit us hard, but then so to speak. But then we rebounded essentially the next quarter. This one's very. This one will be different insofar as China is so much more uh, important to the world economy and Australia's economy today than what it was back in two thousand and three. So. Yeah, we're already seeing iron ore prices tumble. Really come off, haven't they? Because obviously China is a big um, importer of our iron ore. That's right. And they're literally shutting 10 million people's cities down so people aren't working. Um, They can't get the goods off the docks. If you're importing things from China, you can't actually get the mountains from certain areas. So this one only actually have an impact on uh, the directly Australian economy, but the Australian uh, consumers that want to consume, that want to spend. Let's talk about the um, the new iPhone being delayed because some of the parts yeah, are made so in that province. So there's going to be quite wide-ranging impacts. Yeah, so even th- it's funny when you actually start diving into it. So tourism, and yep. obvious, so that there's been a ban on flights in and out of China. So yep. that's having obviously a significant impact to the tourism. You, you think of some hotspots, Cairns, the Gold Coast, uh, those sort of areas which will be really struggling. And this is on the back of uh, already the, the worldwide publicity of the bushfires and these images of what some people think is the whole of Australia being on fire. Yep. So even those non-Chinese or non-China uh, tourists are not coming because of those images. Mm. The other one which was really interesting and some pretty crazy numbers was education. So over the next six months... They've thrown out figures that the industry, the education industry, um, could suffer losses between six to eight billion. And with that's a B. in six months. That's like, insane. Like I, I know that we've we've heard the the vice chancellors of the various universities talk about you know the significant impact it's going to have on their universities, but I had no idea it was that big a number. Yeah. Like that's astronomical. Thirteen, almost fourteen thousand international students. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, they're paying a lot for their education. And the other areas is obviously casinos. Which, which surprised me, I must admit, but you know, they're saying that their numbers are down 20%. Yeah, which is a, is a huge impact to those kind of businesses. And then obviously flights and you, the likes of businesses like Sydney airports are going to be really struggling because yeah. they're not getting that, that flow of business through. And I've even heard anecdotally that um, uh, Sunnybank here in Brisbane, uh, that people aren't going to the restaurants. Yeah. Even though, you know, yes, they're Chinese restaurants, but... Uh, which uh, it, that to me it actually doesn't make sense, but that's just the the, the flow psyche, of the yeah, psyche that's right. of the, the consumer out there in the marketplace. There was uh, some optimism in his speech. Um, there's some comments in regards to um, a gentle turning point. So the economy is still in a gentle turning point, um, predicting modest uh, increases in growth and consumer spending over the coming years. So although uh, there are these negative implications around these the virus, the drought, and the fires. Um, there's still optimism there. So just quickly before we close out this month, Brett, um, I just want to put a shout out to our listeners. If you are enjoying the podcast and finding the content really, really good, then please share it with your friends or family. Uh, Leave us a review if you're listening on iTunes or something like that. And if you want to uh, keep up to date on when the, the next release of our episodes are out, then hit the subscribe button on your platform of choice. And also make sure that if you have any questions about the content that we talk about or the content you would like us to talk about, uh, drop us a line on our um, email address and um, then we can we can cover it off. Yeah, that would be great. So we look forward to everyone joining us again next month on Making Sense of It All, where we will dive into the financial foundations of wealth creation through a focus on investing in shares. And I get a lot of questions around this, so I think we'll have great engagement. Um, we'll have Kenneth Beanland from uh, Morgan's North Key coming in and having a chat to us in regards to investing. Excellent. So until next time, remember, gain insight and take control. See you next time. Bye-bye.
the information contained in this podcast should not be interpreted as advice. It is general in nature and does not take into account your individual financial situation or needs and should not be relied upon before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial decision. We recommend you consult with a licensed professional advisor to consider your unique circumstances. Guests appearing on this podcast may have a commercial relationship with the companies mentioned. 